0: I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, super fan of Madeline Lingle, and so excited to talk about her today with my guest. This year's Old Books with Grace Lent series, called A Book That Changed Me, offers four different conversations with guests on a book of their choice that changed them, that made them think deeply about transformation, and brought them closer to truth. Books can be mirrors, they can help us to consider ourselves in new light. They invite us into conversation and reflection we wouldn't have known to participate in without their guidance. Each of the guests in this series has chosen a book that invited them into reflection, remembrance, and self-knowledge. Each conversation is quite different, some more personal, others less, and the books span from the Middle Ages to the 1960s, which is where we are today. If you're inspired, I'd love to hear about a book that changed you on social media— you can find me on Instagram at OldBooksWithGrace or on Twitter at GraceHammondPhD. My guest today is Caitlin Shess, who has chosen to talk about the absolutely wonderful young adult novel, A Wrinkle in Time. Caitlin Shess is the author of The Ballot in the Bible, How Scripture Has Been Used and Abused in American Politics and Where We Go from Here, forthcoming from Brazos, and The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. Her writing has appeared at Christianity Today, The New York Times, Christ and Pop Culture, Relevant and Sojourner. She has a THM in Systematic Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary and is currently a doctoral student in Political Theology at Duke Divinity School. Caitlin, I am so glad that you are joining me on Old Books with Grace today. Welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad that we get to talk. Me too. So I ask everyone who comes on the podcast two questions as a sort of get to know you. The first, and I know that you probably have too many to answer, so I'll just say you can answer several if you want. What is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago and why?
1: Ooh, that is hard. The first thing that comes to mind, um, is probably author and book together. Um, I, I have probably read more Augustine in my life than I have read anyone else I thought you might and, say that yeah <laughs> and and I love him dearly for all of the like modern criticisms of him as being sexist which have some truth but also I think can be overblown I just he is just easily the theologian that has shaped my perspective on the world the most and his like most I mean I think one of his most significant books and probably his longest um, The City of God is just a book that like it takes such commitment to read that I can remember each of the times that I read it through completely. One of those times, the first time was in seminary. I knew I was taking an Augustine class and I knew we were going to read some City of God, but not all of it. And I already knew I wanted to do something in political theology. So I thought, "I, I have to read the whole thing. If we're not going to read the whole thing, I have to read the whole thing. So I put out on the internet, who wants to spend the summer reading City of God with me? which for people who don't know, I mean, it really is a big, it's a pretty it's big commitment. It's, <laughs> it's a, a brick of a book. It's a big yeah. book. Yes. Um, and I think I got like 500 people to join a Facebook group with me to read of your Amazing, God. And I, but my, my real flaw was I really wanted to do it in a whole summer. And so we read two books, the like chapters basically every week, I think, which again, there there there's a lot going on in them, It's yes. very distanced from our context. so it kind of takes a lot of work. I don't think a single person in that five hundred person group stayed with me the whole <laughs> time. but that's but such is, a valiant effort way yeah, to go thank you. thank you. I did it. and that was like a very meaningful read. And now I've read it, you know, multiple times since then. it is one of my one of my absolute favorite books.
0: no, I actually. Read City of God through and same as you. I remember both times I've read it twice very vividly because you do, you feel so accomplished when you're yeah. finished with it. Because for those of you who haven't read it, it's basically like Augustine's history of the world, sort of his take on yeah. it. And so you're not only reading about his uh, theology of justice or whatever, but you're also reading um about his like strange theories on the Old Testament and on um and uh, speaking of the the yeah Augustine as misogynist stuff you're reading some really interesting things on how he's uh talking about women and men and um and that was actually where I was like oh my gosh surprisingly Augustine was less misogynist than I thought he was right? gonna be city yes. of God really opened my eyes to that. I'm glad you answered, Augustine. I was curious if you were going to. Uh, okay. So question number two, though, is which literary character do you most identify with and why? Oh, cool. I know it's a toughie, but and it doesn't have to be
1: highbrow. highbrow. Don't worry. You could say, okay, I, you please. That's what I was kind of doing. I'm glad you said that in my head. I was like, what is not embarrassing to say? Um, There's been embarrassing okay. answers before. Don't fret. <laughs> this might not be embarrassing, but it is um a book that I'm sure I don't think it's a really popular book. I don't think probably a lot of people have read it. It's called "Hope was here." and i don't mm-hmm. I don't remember the author. I, I can look it up and tell it to you. Um, it was a book that i I mean, it's like a, you know, young adult fiction. And it was about this girl whose mother was a, a chef, and they kind of traveled a lot for her mom to have jobs. And it's this really kind of beautiful story of this mom and daughter kind of settling into this community and finding a home in this new place. But as a child, I was a military kid. I grew up moving all the time. And this book was really kind of about that sense of displacement and kind of Mm -hmm. finding yourself constantly moving for a parent's job that's not in your control and kind of trying to find different forms of community than People traditionally have. Like I have a Mm -hmm. lot of friends now who, you know, where they grew up still plays this really significant role in their sense of self and their life. And I don't really have that at all. We moved every couple years for the most part. And so sometimes less than that. And so it was a meaningful book to me as a, as a child to relate to this, this character who was trying to figure out, her name was Hope, trying to figure out, what it meant that she was in a place, even if it was for a short time, and what it meant to have an impact on people's lives in a positive way. You know, she was working through like acting out in response to her mom and, you know, normal like teenage things. But at the time it was really meaningful to me to read a story about someone who had a similar kind of sense of displacement or like unsettledness in the world. Mm,
0: Super interesting. I I think there's um, like a period in your life or ev- everything you read is influential in some way, I think, but that that early teenage time of reading is like profoundly uh, yeah. formative, at least it was for me. And I feel yeah. like it is that way for a lot of people.
1: Those oh, are the totally. characters
0: that you em- envision yourself after for a long time.
1: Yeah, I still have that book. I mean, I don't have a lot of the books that I had as a child, or at least a lot of them are at my parents' house or may have gotten lost along the way, but I've held on to that one because it was really meaningful. Mm.
0: Okay, so for this podcast series, for Lent, um, I've been thinking through with guests on uh, Lenten themes of turning, conversion, repentance, transformation, and um, every guest who's come on, I've asked them to pick a book that uh, is about transformation for them and has changed them somehow. And you, to my great delight, chose Madeline Langle's A Wrinkle in Time, which is a great choice. Um, but before we dive into that, let's just briefly set it in its context. Um for those who uh, weren't obsessed with this book as as I was as a kid, um, who was Madeline Lingle? When did she live? What else has she written? Maybe we could just take a second to set her in context.
1: Yeah. I mean, you'll probably know more about some of her background personally. I just was listening this morning to a podcast, um, interview with her granddaughter who, Hmm. um, lived with her through graduate school. She did a, a PhD and like lived with her grandmother while she did it, which is very cool. Oh, how cool. Um, but, I mean, my introduction to her was A Wrinkle in Time. Was I have my mom's copy of the book. Um, as we talked about earlier, it was published in the early 60s. And um, wrote a lot of, of religiously inflected um, fiction and also a bunch of nonfiction. A lot of the writers that I know mostly know her through her writing about writing and about mm-hmm. interpreting the Bible. Um, and at the same time, a lot of this fiction is not... Like, on one hand, I, re, you know, rereading it last night and this morning, there's, like, so many biblical allusions or straight-up biblical citations. Yes. But at the same time, like, it wasn't categorized at the time, I think, maybe because of the different relationship with religion, um, e- even though it was changing at the time. Like, it wasn't – this di- this wasn't at least introduced to me as, like, Christian fiction. No, definitely not. Like, a, like a distinct not. genre. It was, like, yeah. this is just kind of part of the world that that she is in. Um. And so, yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. So this book was published in 1962 and I was, um, <laughs> I was on the ever handy Wikipedia page before our conversation, <laughs> looking up some fun facts and uh, um, actually this book was uh, rejected more than 30 times. Oh I discovered, goodness. can you believe that? Oh. And now it's such a classic. I can't even yeah. imagine a world without it. But um, before it was uh, accepted, it it actually was rejected more than 30 times so even in its even in its time it was a book that wasn't fitting boxes clearly at yeah. all and uh madeline herself was born in 1918 and died in 2007 um and so this this happened like kind of right in the middle of her life and she had already been writing for a few years um and but hadn't had like massive success it, she had been moderately successful um and she she lived most of her time in New York City, but spent a but they had their their country house in in Connecticut mm. called Crosswicks, where a lot of her nonfiction mm-hmm. uh, is set and based in um that you mentioned. and um, which I have been reading, by the way, just a side plug for those of you who haven't read her nonfiction and have only read her um her y a stuff. It is so good. And I encourage everyone yeah. to go out and buy copies. I just read of I just read The Irrational Season and I had never mm. read it before. And mm. it blew me away. I mean, it was so good. But that's neither here nor there for this conversation. Mm-hmm. But just a plug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, so but let's talk about a wrinkle in time then. Yeah. Um so for those who haven't read it before, or maybe haven't read it in decades. Maybe we could do a quick synopsis without totally ruining things. Giving but, it all away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, it is funny. Like I said, just kind of, I really only reread it last night and this morning. And it is pretty short. Like, you mm-hmm. can really read it. If you just sat down, you could read it in a couple of hours or less. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, So really kind of, and ironically, I almost answered your earlier question about, you know, a character that you really relate to. I think a lot of us who read this at like a, you know, teenager year relate to the main character, Meg, who you like meet her at the beginning. And it's kind of a stereotypical is not the right word because it is really like a shared experience of a lot of teenagers of just not really fitting in in her body or the world and trying to figure out who she is. Um, She has two parents who are scientists, and she feels really like she's struggling in school and trying to figure out how she fits in that. She has two twin brothers and then a younger brother, Charles Wallace. And her father, you learn at the beginning, has just been gone for a long time, and you don't really know what that means or why. And then you discover later that um, her father, as a scientist, kind of took on some sort of mission with the government, and no one has heard from him for a year, and we have no idea where he is. And then you meet, like, these three strange uh, creatures, older women initially, um, who kind of come from, like, a haunted house in their neighborhood. And she's introduced (laughs) to them by her younger brother, Charles Wallace. Um, And they kind of say, like, we're going to go on an adventure and we're going to, like you know, you're not sure at the beginning what this has to do with her father, but it's clear that like, we're feeling things out, something is happening. And along the way, Meg, her younger brother, Charles Wallace, and then they pick up um, a strange friend from not even really friend yet from her school, who's a little older and cooler than her, but you find out might actually be more like her than she thought, um, Calvin. And these three kind of women who you're unsure what they are or what they mean, kind of whisk them off into this really like cosmic adventure where they time travel and space travel to another planet where her father's held captive and they have to face this unique threat and um it is really a mix of like a moral um issue with sort of like a cosmic thing going on where there's just a sense of of an evil presence that is taking over planets throughout the galaxy and and even saying that it sounds it's i feel like there's such a tension in this book between like a a sci-fi kind of thing but then a real like moral seriousness which isn't always there it's not campy it's like no this is a real description of of evil in the world that these three children are kind of brought into this fight against in order to get her father back
0: yes that's a great um summation of it without without giving too much away for the folks (laughs) who need to revisit or need to visit for the first time um why did you pick a wrinkle in time what about it struck you know what about it brought it into your mind when I had reached out to you
1: yeah, when, you know, when I first read this book, I, I told someone a few years ago, it was like the first time that I thought that Christians were allowed to have like an imagination. <laughs> Yes. Like, <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Or the Christians, because I I grew up in a in an evangelical you know church kind of culture where we didn't read Harry Potter, we didn't read kind of the magical mystical things. There was a weird exception for Tolkien. I don't know how we kind of worked <laughs> that out, but but there was a real sense that some of that could be dangerous, mm-hmm. and I didn't have a lot of exposure to stories that were told like this. And so, reading this, I look back and think, you know my understanding of the world and my faith at the time was mostly about kind of my moral choices. And like, Mm -hmm. I should go through the world and be a good person. And if I'm a good person and I pray a prayer, I'll go to heaven when I die. And I think later when I was kind of introduced to a, a version of Christianity that was more cosmic and understood the power of sin in the world as not just my own choices, but of a larger you know, impact on the world that impacted families and communities and and systems and cultures, and that there was more going on of of this, like, you know, real sense of goodness that would overcome evil in the end, that it wasn't just this individual thing, but it was this larger cosmic story. I look back and I think, oh, that was exciting to me in part because of a book like this. I didn't understand that at the time, but it was helpful for me In part because it tells this story, and people have talked about this forever, that these are the kinds of stories that help us understand that aspect of what's happening in the world. Yes. But it's also, like, it's not explicitly Christian, but there's Christian language, there's biblical language all throughout it, and so— it doesn't it was almost easier to understand a connection between that whereas other people saw that in stories that i had been kind of taught were entirely secular like that's not something that has anything to do with our faith in this world this isn't kind of a straightforward like allegory for the christian faith but it's it is described in a world in which jesus is is described as an important person in which scripture is quoted regularly and which the story of like cosmic um battle is described in in terms that fit within a christian understanding of the world. and so i look back and think that was really significant for me mm-hmm. and even now when i want to think about both the reality of suffering and evil in the world and this sense of repentance, the 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 desire that i have for it to be larger than just individual choices, mm-hmm. i think is really well described in this in this book.
0: Mm. I love that way of putting it. I think that that is absolutely one of Lingle's strengths is that sense of the cosmic and the individual as being inseparable and part of one another where uh, um, everything she always, she emphasizes in all of her books, especially in this series in in this time series um, of which a wrinkle in time is, is one of, I think four or five, I'm forgetting how many, Mm but um, that the, the individual person and the cosmological significance of that individual person can never be separate from each other. And that, um, especially reading that as a, uh, as a, what I was maybe 12, um, or 11, but that sense of, okay, what I do in the world matters more than my like, um, oh, you hurt your brother's feelings or something. While that was significant uh-huh. and hugely important, but this ripple effect of I move as somebody affecting other people and what they do affects me. And you're right, it it led me to cultivate my imagination for actually what, what good and evil can look like in the world and that it's not just... Um, Though it's never abandoned completely, but it's not just your individual choices, decisions, thoughts, actions, um, which is powerful to realize as a as a young teen or a older child. Um, yeah. Do you remember your first reading of it? Do you remember it?
1: I. I don't remember how I felt reading it, but I do remember the first time I saw it because I found the book in my mom's bookshelf. And obviously people can't see this, but I'll show you just for your, like, <laughs> I have that same I, copy. <laughs> it is a wild cover. So, <laughs> yeah. for okay, so, who- so for those who can't
0: see, Oh no, you, yeah. you were about to describe it. Go yeah, for yeah, it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it is like, so there's like a blue horse with a man's body and pink wings and there's, like, sky behind it and, like, kind of foreboding mountains. And then there's just, like, this blue orb with a green face and orange eyes. It's just, like, a lot of colors going on. It's very scary for, like, it, Yeah, it is child. not attractive or, like, winsome or, like, fantastical <laughs> in a good way. It is scary looking. It is scary. And I don't think it's, like, a great representation <laughs> of <to> the <laughs> book itself. <laughs> um but I do. I that was actually part of what, like weirdly, drew me to it was that I saw the picture and I thought, how could my first of all, the idea that my mother would own a book like this at all was really surprising to me yes. because we weren't supposed to like scary stuff or no, kind like of the, the weird horseman
0: with, yeah. with the creepy face. Like, what is that?
1: And I do remember. I don't remember what I thought when I first read it, but I do remember asking my mom about it before I read it. And her talking about, you know, this was her copy from when she was a child. And it was a strange realization that, like, my mother was a child and, like, my mother read books like this. And um, I don't think that's unrelated to how significant the book came mm-hmm. became for me to mm-hmm. think that, like, similar to, again, Meg has this relationship. And there's not a lot in the book about Meg's relationship with her mom, except for in the beginning there is this description of – her both like deep love for her mom and also like the the difficulty of a relationship with someone who she thinks is beautiful Mm -hmm. and smart and goes through the world with ease in a way that she does not. And that I related to deeply. My mom is to this day, like is just, you know, she just looks really beautiful all of the time. She's really good at lots of kind of like social things and hospitality in ways that I am not. And so I also just felt like this was this, you know, dear connection to my mom to know that she read this book when she was a child. And I did too, even though like Meg, I feel such great love for her and also feel this sense of like, how could I ever be like her? How could I ever match the like standard I've set in my mind based on her? Mm -hmm. And you don't really get at the end of this book um, resolution with her and her mom, but you do. I mean, it, it, that part of the story of the whole book is Meg realizing the gift of the love that her family has together Mm -hmm. and the realization that not every family has that kind of closeness and real love. I mean, early in the book, there's this part where um, Calvin, this like, you know, person who's a little bit older than her in school comes over to her house and just, he says something like, I have this strange feeling that I'm going home for the first time and like comes to her family's home. And he's like, you know, you know brought into the house and her mom is like cooking food on a bunsen burner cuz she's a scientist and like the twins are there and it just feels kind of chaotic to Meg and she misses her dad and she sees a picture of him and tells Calvin about him and then he says something like you don't know how lucky you are to be loved and she says something like you know I guess I took it for granted and so I, that in that sense that was a real thing I could relate to in the beginning to feel like I don't feel like I fit in the world and I don't think I can ever match the standards my mom has set but I also think I take for granted quite a bit that I mm. grew up being loved,
0: mm. and I think you touch on something that uh, that Lingle's books are particularly good at, and something that is, I think, transformative, or it was for me in reading, which is that she um, always writes for children, but treating them as full humans worried yeah. about those kinds of things worried about things like living up to your parents um worried about uh love or the absence of love thinking about time and space and she's not dumbing down this stuff for um for kids who are just reading this just learning just thinking about these things and um and I actually found this This great quote from her from she had an interview with the New York Times and she had said, it's often possible to make demands of a child that couldn't be made of an adult. A child will often understand scientific concepts that would baffle an adult. This is because he can understand with a leap of the imagination that is denied the grown up who has acquired the little knowledge that is a dangerous thing. Hmm. Um, And then she says, a philosophy as well as science, the child will come to it with an open mind, whereas many adults come closed to an open book. This is one reason Hmm. why so many writers turn to fantasy, which children claim is their own, when they have something important and difficult to say. Um, And her unique gift of taking those familial elements, which are often very difficult to discuss, both age appropriately, but really truthfully, and um, and then taking in these fantastic scientific elements um, and blending them together in a way that treated kids and their intellect really seriously, mm. that was intoxicating to me when I read the, yeah. the first story.
1: Yeah, and even just like, I, I was thinking this morning reading it, like, there are so many stories where um you know a child is kind of like plucked out of obscurity and they have some secret ability that will then you know save the world or whatever harry and, potter right which yes, i love yes. i'm not like i'm not ragging on harry potter but there's a, a, a yeah. there's a lot of different versions of that yeah yes and it speaks to something that like there's a reason kids love that like everyone wants to be told that they're kind of secretly significant and like mm-hmm. in spite of all of their insecurities and doubts and the ways they feel like they don't fit in the world actually they're really necessary to to save the world. And their their gifts are really necessary. And I love that in this story, there's an element of that. Mm -hmm. Like Meg is like plucked out of her normal life and goes on this, you know, space traveling adventure. And there's a moment where, you know, Calvin and her younger brother, Charles Wallace, have these unique intellectual gifts that are Mm -hmm. necessary. But she's also kind of told like, but really you're the one that really is going to be necessary to, to save your dad and to save Charles Wallace. But it's not like... Oh, secretly, she's a genius. I mean, she is. But, like, it's not, oh, secretly, there's some, you know, great skill that she has. Like, ultimately, totally. it, it's her persistence and this realization at the end that, like, the gift that she has that overcomes evil is love. And mm-hmm. the way that that Langle is able to do that in a way that doesn't feel cheesy, yes. like, oh, love is the answer. No, it's like when you've already described a world that people can, I mean, I think people can recognize, even children especially can recognize There is great evil in the world. And when we pretend like kids don't get that, I think we're really missing something. They really can understand at a young age there is something really wrong. And it affects me and it affects my family. It affects the world. And I really, like, I truly believe that that is the story of the redemption of creation Mm. is the the overwhelming love of Christ overcoming evil in the world. And if that's a, like, foundationally true story, then the versions of it that are cheesy— are the kind of sentimentalized versions. And this is not that. This is like, takes really seriously how evil has, you see this in like the physical sense. There's a scene where, you know, these three women take them up to see a planet that's been engulfed by this kind of black cloud. That's this description of, of the evil that's overcoming these planets. And yet you also see it really intimately in Meg. She talks about that feeling of having gone through this black cloud and then feeling such like, hatred towards her father and yes. speaking in ways she doesn't want to. And so it's not just like cheesy, you know, white hats and black hats fighting it out. And that's the good and evil in the world. It's the recognition that it is really difficult to discern yes. how it's affected you and how it's shaped your world. And it is this really difficult battle. But the truth of it is like, it's not just a cop out. It really is true that, that love will overcome evil. It's not as simple as it sounds when we say it like that. But, in, and it takes a lot of work. She has to be put in a dangerous situation, be willing to risk, you know, being really harmed. But then ultimately that is the answer. So by the end of it, it doesn't feel like, oh, thanks, love is the answer. No, it feels like that is a really, that's a description of the world that people have experience with and can relate to.
0: I was also very struck by that in this rereading uh, because Lingle has this habit uh, that I noticed with her characters, um, where especially the the three uh, women and i'm using women in scare <laughs> quotes because they are uh they are other with yeah. a capital yeah. o yeah. um it, but but what they often will say to meg or to charles wallace or to calvin um is they they warn them that something will be difficult. And I've noticed this happening over and over. They say, this will Mm -hmm. be hard for you, or I know it's difficult, or I know, I know this is hard, um, where there's this constant recognition of, of of exactly what you were saying, that none of this is cheaply won, that, um, love is not, uh, costly, that it is costly, that it, it can't not be costly. Um, and, and that, uh, That the battle is hard, and that it's okay to say that out loud. And I was struck that there's that thread of acknowledgement throughout, mm. um, and that comes before things like feelings in this book. They say that before somebody has some big feelings, yeah, and it comes before patience, and it comes before the actual acts of of real courage and bravery that make yeah. up a lot of the action in the novel. Um, but I was so struck by that and, and, and thought what a lovely model that is to, to tell the truth, but to also say, and this will be hard and this will be hard Mm. for you. Yeah. And
1: just, I think, I mean, the fact that it is that some of the difficulty is not just like sheer willpower. Like, I mean, early in it, there's a part where, um, again, Meg is talking to her mother, And I think it's after her mom and her and Charles Wallace have this like strange encounter with one of the, again, women creatures of some kind that, um, and, and this, and the woman kind of freaks out her mom. She says something that only she would really kind of understand. She talks about a tesseract and and Meg's mom is really freaked out. And there's a point, I think it's after that where, um. Meg is talking to her mom, and her mom is lamenting, like, if your father were here, he could really help you with some of this. On some level, all that is necessary to get you through this is it's just going to take time. Like, Mm -hmm. it's going to take slogging through some time. And that sense that it's not what gets her through this, this emotional difficulty, is not just trying harder or being better, but sometimes it just takes time for you to get through. And then at the very end, like, before Meg's kind of final moment – I think it's it's one of the again the women um has this long section of of quoting scripture and talking about you know God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And so the fact that even this moment of like we need you to help like save things is not you possess this incredible skill or like if you just work really hard you'll get it. It's like actually this is they even use the phrase like this is by grace. I only want what you're yes. getting through grace. And actually in all of your imperfection and all of the ways that you feel like you don't fit like you will be used anyway not because you shape up and figure it out and become like by willpower become a better person but because that god has chosen to use you know the unexpected things of the world to to fulfill this kind of of redemption that's described in such beautifully cosmic terms here
0: Yes. And I think that's something that struck me again upon reading uh, is how often Lingle walks this lovely and delicately balanced line that can be explored in fiction. That's way harder to explore in nonfiction Mm -hmm. of the confluence of grace with agency, where her Meg is a figure who, who, um, has to do things by herself. The the climax of the action is Meg having to do something very hard by herself. But we realize as we read that she is in that moment present because of grace and the love of her family. Um, and and Lingle weaves that in throughout. That all of this, the 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 women figures are angelic figures in the end because they are. Um, guides and messengers and helpers but Meg is still a figure who is learning her um, who she is in the world and discovering it via grace Mm. Um, and so there's that line walked and then that that Lingle's a master of that in other senses as well because uh, something that Uh, really affected me when I read it for the first time was that, Oh, this is a book in which science and religion are not at odds with each other. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I too grew up in a, in an evangelical household and, um, and thankfully science and religion weren't presented as at odds with each other by my family, but I lived in a world where that was definitely um, part of the discourse and part of the, my formation is, is a distrust and a, uh, a feeling that they couldn't be reconciled at their mm-hmm. bottom. And when you encounter a wrinkle in time, again, Lingle's walking that fine line of, of look. It's like the grace and agency thing <laughs> where yeah. um, both are gifts uh, and they actually uh, fill each other out in really lovely ways in this book. Mm-hmm. And that was really formative on me as a as a child and seeing oh my gosh this is a really big universe and actually mm. science is mm-hmm. lovely um a beautiful thing something I'm not called to personally yeah but something <laughs> that I can admire very
1: much and
0: have learned yes. to
1: admire from, from yes, her, from fiction yeah um, yeah <laughs> yeah even even the sense that like I mean, I was thinking just last night reading this, like, there's, I don't know, probably three or four total planets that they go to. And in in all of them that are not the one that they go to that's really been kind of taken over by the evil, there's, like, people singing, like, creatures singing, like, words of hymns or scripture praising God that's just seen as, like, of course— That's what's happening in all these places. Like, even just, as you said, for, like, a non-scientist who, um, while I did grow up in a context where those were pretty divided, that wasn't something I really struggled with. I wasn't trying to study science. I did feel this sense of how small that made the world. Like, you can't ask too many questions. You can't, like... You know, research too many places. Even in theology, I faced this. Yes. Like I went to a pretty conservative seminary. Now I'm at Duke. There were professors I had in seminary who said, "Like, be careful. Got to, you know, just be careful. There's some dangerous stuff." And and that doesn't mean there's not some good point to to what they were trying to say. I think they had an earnest desire to to make sure I was learning truth. Yes, but they also had this fear at the root of it. Of like, if you go searching too much, you you might really slip into a place that's yes. bad. Instead, in this, it's like they go jump to these other planets and of course they're praising God over there because the whole universe is, is God's and created by God and glorifies God. And so that just like that sense of wonder in the world, even for a non-scientist, that's a different posture towards even the one earth that I will never like be gone from in my yes, travels. No, but that's a different <laughs> posture towards creation no. than like being afraid that if you, if you search too much, if you explore too much, you might really kind of you know be in danger. Yes, like don't
0: don't uncover too many things. Um and and that that it really is the opposite because in a wrinkle in time what we're learning is oh it actually the the deeper you go, the more you're going to see the presence of God because that's that's the song of praise of creation.
1: Yeah.
0: Um and I that is absolutely beautiful and um I so enjoy that. the The freshness of the yeah. new worlds is wonderful. Um, well, we're beginning to run out of time, but I have just a couple more questions for you. Now that uh, you've reread it as an adult recently have you been able to discern any ways that it's influenced you or transformed you as the person you are today? And you've been answering that indirectly all throughout this conversation, but um, we've talked a lot about our our childhood impressions and now that, now do you see ways where you're like, oh,
1: I discovered that in this book and it has actually formed me more than I thought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, You know, when I first went to seminary, um, you know, six years ago now, I remember my first semester class, I was with a professor that became a great mentor to me and just a beloved teacher. And his first lesson in this introductory class was kind of taking us through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and saying, like, the vision that you have gotten in many of your evangelical churches of... You know, your orientation to creation and to God and to the world is just pray a prayer and go to heaven. And it's about you individually. Mm. And your sin is just about choices you make. And that's, that's the description of the world and yourself is wrong. Here's this, you know, story from Genesis to Revelation of God's love for creation, for the cosmic effects of, of redemption and restoration that we are awaiting. And what that means for you is, creative work in the world is dignified and, and means something and will be ultimately redeemed and continued in new creation. And I look back and think at the time it, that was both really revolutionary and yet my immediate reaction to it was I I want that to be true. Like yes. I'm ready to receive that because that is a more beautiful story than the story I was told. And I think that's partially true because I just think humans are hungry for that truthfulness and that beauty of that story. But I also think that in a lot of ways, this book shaped my imagination for that kind of story Mm -hmm. because I wasn't reading a lot of books that had this kind of cosmic scope. Or described evil and love and goodness in these kinds of terms. Mm -hmm. Um, I I read a lot of fiction, but again, like this particular genre and the ways that it can show that kind of cosmic scope was not something that I was allowed to read or really did read. Um, And especially as I got older, like I've had to make a real effort in recent years to read more fiction because Mm I that just wasn't what I was interested in. I also was like a pretty kind of competitive academic kid. So once I figured out what I wanted to study, it was like, I'll just read systematic theology until I die. (laughs) And it's been helpful to realize that like this was able to cultivate an imagination in me that was filled out with some really kind of heady doctrinal stuff later. But it's different to have both of those things, to have this kind of vision of the world presented in a kind of foreign strange context and then to see oh that actually this description is really a description of of something true in the world Mm. that i can get to a certain place with that in a in a more doctrinal sense but having this kind of fill out the shape and imagination of it is really necessary too I think the role of fiction in
0: expanding our imagination for thinking theologically is, I know a bunch of people have talked about it, but yet it still goes underrated, I think. And still, because you're right, um, especially when you're an academic or when you're um, trying to read heavy things, uh, you're constantly aware of how much more you need to read, right? You are reading, (laughs) you're reading, um, uh, I don't know, fill in the blank. You're reading and you're like, oh, I better read Luther now or you're reading uh, Bernard of Clairvaux and you're like, I better go read Gregory the Great. I I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. And um, reading something like Madeline Lingol is so wonderful because it reminds us that our imaginations need to be fed so that Mm. we can approach these, these texts with that with that real capaciousness, yeah, and um, and then I I also think that it gives hope too. Um, when I read when I read A Wrinkle in Time, reread it for this, I went, oh, this is a hopeful book. This is a hopeful yeah. book of the work of good and evil, um, working against evil, at and in our own little times and places, and and recognizing that it's significant which is hard to remember sometimes i think yeah
1: yeah i even think like i said before that little part where you know it's set in this really fantastical context like meg and her dad and they're like on this strange planet where she's been cared for by these strange creatures and they're going to go fight this cosmic evil and yet like that actual very end part is really short <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's there's not a lot at the end really just it's not like this battle you know, like in, you know, C.S. Lewis or Tolkien, like a real, yes. like physical battle, that's not really described. There is a much longer section where it's like her dealing with how she responds to her father and like yes. the sense that this evil has, has, um, the, like the language is about how she's cold and like her heart is cold in a different way than her body is cold and, and learning to respond to him and his failures differently. It's like that's the kind of thing that, That is very relatable. I'm never charging out into battle against anyone physically, but I remember, especially as a teenager and even to this day, like those moments where you're like, how I respond in this conversation is delicate and important. But there's also this other larger cosmic thing going on and having Mm -hmm. language to name that and set my own kind of mundane conflicts with family and friends and coworkers in that context is really meaningful. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: it's it's I think related to Lingle's ongoing interest in um, in deepening engagement with spirituality beyond like intellectualism or rationalism about it. Where um, she's interested in that bodily response in the work of storytelling. And she's interested in physics and metaphysics. And yeah. there's no artificial distinction between these things um, yeah. in her holistic approach to telling stories.
1: Yeah, I love it. And and even, I mean, the fact that, again, you kind of like are, are able to be both very related to the story, and yet it is a strange context. like. That moment where it's like, oh, I completely relate to having this fight with my father. But also how strange that I'm relating to like a fight with a father on a strange planet about whether to save my brother from this evil mind thing. Like it's <laughs> yeah, just
0: it's it's like this disembodied uh, brain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love it. I mean, this is the huge argument for fantasy and sci fi. Because yes. you're like, oh, something, there's something so wonderful about putting ordinary people in bizarre contexts where you're like, ah, I'm seeing myself here, yeah. even though it's <laughs> definitely not me fighting the rhythmic evil beat of the Bra- disembodied brain. But oh my gosh, like I understand, I know what she means.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Um, Well, thank you so much for coming on to talk A Wrinkle in Time with me. What a joy. Mm -hmm. Um, If folks are interested in finding out more about what you're up to, um, where can they
1: find you online? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Caitlin Chess, or you can go to CaitlinChess.com, which is information about... Um, Two books, one that I wrote in 2020 and another one that's coming out soon, um, and some other resources. Um, I do a lot of stuff with spiritual formation and political engagement, so there are some resources on there for individuals and groups to kind of think more thoughtfully, especially – I mean, we're kind of a ways out now from the next election, but it will come faster than you (laughs) imagine and and seep into our lives in a scary (laughs) way. So um, (laughs) there are some resources there, like prayers and spiritual disciplines, to think better about how we can can live lives that um, are not – so determined um, and so kind of negatively shaped by the political world that we live in.
0: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Grace.
0: Thanks for listening to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and I would love to hear from you if you wanted to share a book that changed you. If you'd like to read more of my writing and hear about what I'm up to with medieval literature— you can subscribe to my free monthly Substack newsletter, Medievalish with Grace Hammond, at gracehammond.substack.com. I'd also deeply appreciate it if you rated and or reviewed Old Books with Grace on the platform of your choice. It helps me out a lot and helps other folks to find the podcast. In two weeks will be the final episode of this Lent series. Thanks again for listening.